Good morning. It's Sunday, so you know what that means. It's time for us to gather together and worship and celebrate God together. I'm so happy you're with us online. And uh, it's just great that we even have this technology to be able to do this on a day like today, like Daniel said, where it's snowy and, and rough trying to get out. Uh, we can do this, and this works out really well. So good morning. Thank you for tuning in. Thank you for jumping on with us. Uh, if you have your Bibles, you're going to open up to Esther 3 is where we'll be this morning. But as you're doing that, I got announcements and thank yous to do so announcements um community groups are up and running back online uh they are uh great and connecting and caring for one another it's where all of the goodness of cf all the things that we love all the things that we are longing for to get back to all of that is wrapped up in our community groups even still through virtual through zoom uh they're still awesome because the people of cf are awesome so if you haven't jumped into one if you have if you have a free uh monday night wednesday night thursday night you got a free night, jump on. We'd love to connect with you. We'd love, even if it's just a one time, we'd love to get you plugged in and connected. We're studying the book Knowing God by J.I. Packer. If you don't have it or you haven't read it, that's okay. We want to connect with you. These are community groups. Um, the point of them is to build community. So if you're interested, email pastortimcf at gmail.com. We'll get you plugged in and connected. Um, you can also give online through our website, churchinroscovillage.org slash give. Um, and you can either give online or you can set up, uh, it's got the information on how to make us a bill pay uh, with your bank, whatever is most convenient for you. Uh, thank you for everyone who does give, is giving, continues to give, especially even during these hard times during a pandemic where I know um, things are not as they were. Uh, the people of CF have been faithful to give consistently and generously, so thank you. Everyone who gives, uh, very much appreciate it. And we talked about this last week, um, but if you are interested in having uh, communion resources uh, delivered to your house, brought to your house, or if you would like to come get them from the building, if you want to have communion uh, resources, cup and juice uh, at home, we'd be happy to provide those things for you. So um, please just leave a, a comment, send me an email, something, so we know, and we can either, like I said, open up the building so you can come get them, uh, or we can make uh, some deliveries. So if you are interested in need of those things, please let us know and we'd be happy to get those to you. Um, make sure you say hey in the comments. Just give us a wave, a, a like, something just so we know you're here because we like to know who's around um, and we love you and we miss you. So uh, the last other announcement is February 12th, two weeks-ish, something like that. It's a Friday. February 12th, 7.30, we are going to do a Valentine's Day themed uh, event online. Details to be determined, um, but it's going to be just a fun night for us to get together online and uh, just enjoy each other's company and uh, spread some love to one another. So um, it's going to be a, a lot of fun. We will have more details in the next couple of days, but we want to make sure that uh, you have that planned. Friday night, February 12th at 730, uh, we will be able to uh, gather together on Zoom and um, have some silly fun. So that is coming up. We have a couple other things coming up as we start to head towards the season of Lent um, and start thinking about those things. We have some other things coming, so we will give you those details as um, soon. So, uh, all right, that's it for announcements. Big thank you to our community group leaders. As I talked about, community groups are awesome and good and thriving, um, and that is saying a lot for this season when we, it is just hard to build community online. Our community group leaders have gone above and beyond to do that, to connect, to engage to welcome. Um, and so thank you to all of our community group leaders. Thank you very much for loving and caring and serving our church in that way.
Um, all right, we're going to be in Esther chapter 3. So we started a new series last week, Behind the Scenes, God Behind the Scenes. Uh, Esther is a book where God is not mentioned. He does not show up. There is no prophet speaking. There is no voice from the heavens. There is no miracles, um, big flashy ones anyway. Uh, and so the question becomes, where, where is God? How do we see him? What do we do in those seasons, days, moments, years of our lives where we say, I just don't know where God is. What is he doing? Esther helps us to see that God is always at work. It's a reminder that we don't always get to see or know or understand the work of God on this side of eternity, but that doesn't mean he isn't at work. Just because we are limited in our understanding and our experience doesn't mean, and just because we can't necessarily pinpoint God's hand in the midst of the work doesn't mean he isn't there. So last week we looked at the first two chapters of the story of Esther, and by the end of it, everything seemed great. Esther, our lead person in the story, she has become queen. She's the queen of Persia. She is the queen of one of the biggest kingdoms in the known world. Her cousin, Mordecai, at the very end of chapter 2, has thwarted a plot to, that where someone was trying to assassinate the king of Persia. Mordecai stepped in and was able to keep that from happening. That's got to give him some brownie points with the king. And so at the end of chapter 2, you think, okay, Esther's the queen. She's uh, a Jewish girl. She can protect her people as they are still um, out, away from the promised land. You have Mordecai making um, good relationship with the king. Everything is great. How in the world are we going to keep on talking about this for seven more chapters? Every good story needs a villain. And this morning, we are going to introduce and inject our villain into the story. Let's add some chaos and see what happens and see if God is still in control by the end. That's where we're going to go this morning. Let's pray and jump in. Heavenly Father, we thank you and we praise you. You are good and awesome. We rejoice because you are king. We rejoice in your majesty, your glory. We rejoice in your trustworthiness. You are great and awesome. We come this morning to you seeking your rest, seeking your presence, wanting to hear from you, wanting to engage with you. And God, you tell us time and time again, and you show us time and time again, if we come looking, you're going to show up. So God, help us this morning. On a day where it's cold, on a day where we are literally, for some, stuck in our houses. God, help us to connect with you. Help us to hear from you. As I preach this morning, let the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts be glorifying to you. We pray all of these things because of Jesus and in his name. Amen. All right, so we're going to be in Esther chapter 3, starting in verse 1. After these things, King Ahasuerus promoted Haman the Agagite, the son of Hamadatha, and advanced him and set his throne above all the officials who were with him. And all the king's servants who were at the king's gate bowed down and paid homage to Haman, for the king had so commanded concerning him. But Mordecai did not bow down or pay homage. Then the king's servants who were at the king's gate said to Mordecai, Why do you transgress the king's command? And when they spoke to him day after day, and he would not listen to them, they told Haman in order to see whether Mordecai's words would stand, for he had told them he was a Jew. And, Haman, and when Haman saw that Mordecai did not bow down or pay homage to him, Haman was filled with fury. But he disdained to lay hands on Mordecai alone. So as they had made known to him the people of Mordecai, Haman sought to destroy all the Jews, the people of Mordecai, throughout the whole kingdom 
of us where is. We'll stop there for now. After these things, after what things? Well, it's the events of chapters 1 and 2, all the drama surrounding Vashti, the original queen, and her refusal to go in and dance for the king and for the people he was throwing a party for. And so then he gets rid of her, the king gets rid of her, and has this basically year-long beauty pageant where he ends up choosing Esther to be the new queen. And then finally, as I said earlier, at the end of chapter 2, we see Mordecai, Esther's cousin, who really has been her father throughout most of her life, was sitting, overheard the plans to assassinate the king. He tells Esther, Esther tells the king, and the plans get stopped. After all of these things, Mordecai has helped to prevent King Ahasuerus from being murdered. And after that happens, nothing. Mordecai doesn't get a promotion or a raise, or really anything. His involvement was recorded in the Chronicles of the King, but that's about it. Instead, this man, Haman, is introduced, and he is promoted to basically being second in command. He is second only to the king of Persia. And we aren't told why he gets promoted, but we do find out that some time has passed. So I want to give you a kind of a recap timeline-wise where we are. When the book started, we were in the third year of the reign of King Ahasuerus. In some of your Bibles, that might say Xerxes, same guy. Don't get distracted. Esther becomes queen in the seventh year of his reign at the end of chapter 2. And we're going to see in a little bit, verse 7 tells us that by, the, by verse 7, we are in the twelfth year of the reign of King Ahasuerus. So somewhere between the seventh year and the twelfth year, Haman is promoted. Now this time would line up with uh, Persia's failed attempt to conquer Greece, and they are recovering from that failed attempt, that failed war. And so possibly Haman led well during that time, or maybe he was just, he survived the war and he's next man up. We don't really know. Whatever the case may be, he is now the biggest deal in all of the land who isn't the king. And so with the title and with the power come the respect and admiration of the kingdom. It says in verse 2 that people were bowing down and paying homage as instructed by the king. This is a common sign of honor in many cultures for someone of importance and authority. But we also see in verse 2 that Mordecai would not bow down. He would not pay homage to Haman. Day after day, the king's servants are questioning him about this, and he continues to refuse to do it, and he continues to stand his ground. Eventually, the servants bring this news to Haman, and he is not happy. He is filled with fury, it says. So why won't Mordecai bow to Haman? We aren't given a whole lot of insight, but we do see that Mordecai in verse 4 reveals to the king's servants at some point after they pester him day after day, eventually he tells them he is a Jew. And that news will get to Haman as well. And remember from last week, that was the one thing Mordecai told Esther, don't tell anyone that you are Jewish. And yet Mordecai tells the king's servants, So his refusal to bow to Haman is connected with his Jewish identity in some way. Now, I don't think this is an idolatry thing, right? Jewish people, us as Christians, God's people are not supposed to bow down and worship anything but God. But at the same time, we also see, if you go to Genesis 18, Abraham bows uh, as some men, some official-looking men, come come to his place. He bows to them. In Exodus 18, Moses bows before his father-in-law. It's more, at that time in that culture, it's a respect thing. This is not about worship, per se. And while the Persian leadership definitely viewed themselves as at least chosen and ordained by gods, they didn't necessarily outright see themselves 
as deities, nor did other people. So this isn't about worship in the sense of Haman was considering himself a god and Mordecai won't bow down. So then the question remains, why won't Mordecai bow? We also know this isn't about the fact that Haman is foreign leadership over Mordecai. Right? If that was the case, if this was just about the fact that, that Haman is Persian leadership and Mordecai is Jewish and he's tired of being oppressed by the Persian leadership, well then Mordecai, why would he have saved the king? Why save the king from being killed? If Mordecai hated the government leadership so much, why let Ahasuerus live? So again, I ask, why won't Mordecai bow? I think it's actually revealed for us in the text right there in verse 1. After these things, King Ahasuerus promoted Haman the Agagite, the son of Hamadatha. You're going to see that same full name, very long name for Haman later on in verse 10. It's going to get repeated. The king took his signet ring from his hand, gave it to Haman the Agagite, the son of Hamadatha, only with the extended end to it, the enemy of the Jews. This is one of those times in the Bible where if you are willing to do a little bit of legwork, you're going to experience more of God on a deeper level. That's true about the Bible. Sometimes God will give us a piece of scripture, give us a verse, give us something, and it's just right there, clear as day, easy and understandable and digestible. Sometimes we've got to do a little bit of work. Sometimes we've got to do a little bit of legwork. But what's beautiful about the Bible is this is God's word, and the Bible interprets the Bible, and the Bible does the heavy lifting for you if you are willing to put in a little bit of work. If you're willing to study and read and use commentaries and use the fact that people for generations have been studying the Bible, we can see a little bit of insight into what Mordecai's motivation was. So I'm going to have some scripture on that. There's going to be some references on the screen. If you're looking for something to study this week, you can go and kind of walk through. I'm going to go through these very quickly. You can go and study them uh, throughout the week. But basically, we're going to start um, in Exodus 17. Moses is leading God's people to the promised land in Exodus 17. And it says, then Amalek came and fought with Israel at Rephidim. So Moses said to Joshua, choose for us men and go out and fight with Amalek. Tomorrow I will stand on top of the hill with the staff of God in my hand. This is the awesome battle scene where Moses goes up. The, the Israelites are fighting with the Amalekites, And every time Moses' hands are up, the Israelites are winning the battle. Every time his hands drop, the Israelites start to lose the battle. And so Aaron and her end up taking these big boulders and putting them under Moses' hands and arms so he can keep his hands up and the Israelites can win the battle. And we see in verse 14 of that same chapter, the Lord said to Moses, Write this as a memorial in a book and recite it in the ears of Joshua that I will utterly blot out the memory of Amalek from under heaven. And Moses built an altar and called the name of it, The Lord is My Banner saying, a hand upon the throne of the Lord. The Lord will have war with Amalek from generation to generation. There is a constant war, a constant battle, a constant conflict between God's people and Amalek and his generation. And actually, you can, in fact, if you want to really go dive deep into it this week, you can actually trace the genealogy of Amalek all the way back to Esau. And you have the two brothers, Jacob and Esau, and what does God say about him? Jacob I loved, Esau I hated. And it is in these two lines, in these two brothers, we see the line of promise carried out through Jacob all the way through to Jesus. And oftentimes throughout history, it is the descendants of Esau in some form or, some form or fashion that is battling against God's people. 
Now we know from chapter 3 here, Haman is an Agagite, which means he is a descendant of a man named Agag. Where do we learn about Agag? We learn about Agag in 1 Samuel 15. 1 Samuel 15, Samuel said to, the Lord, said to Saul, The Lord sent me to appoint you king over his people Israel. Now therefore listen to the words of the Lord. Thus says the Lord of hosts, I have noted what Amalek did to Israel in opposing them on the way when they came up out of Egypt. We just read that. Now go and strike Amalek and devote to destruction all that they have. Do not spare them, but kill both man and woman, child and infant, ox and sheep, camel and donkey. God tells Saul, go and wipe out everyone and everything about these people. They have been enemies against, against my chosen people throughout history. Go and wipe them out. Our God is the God of justice. He can carry that justice out however he wants to. And so he gives Saul a very direct command. Go and wipe them out, everything about them. We see in 1 Samuel 15, verse 7, Saul defeated the, Amal- the Amalekites from Havilah as far as Shur, which is east of Egypt. And he took Agag, the king of the Amalekites, alive and devoted to destruction all the people with the edge of the sword. But Saul and the people spared Agag and the best of the sheep and of the oxen and of the fatted calves and the lambs and all that was good and would not utterly destroy them. All that was despised and worthless, they devoted to destruction. Saul, you had one job. Wipe everything out. No caveats. No, just in case, if this looks good, keep it. No, wipe them all out. Saul disobeys God. And so God decides to remove Saul as king. And Samuel has to break the news to Saul, you are being removed as king. God is no longer in your favor. Samuel tells Saul this. And then Saul responds to Samuel and he says, I have sinned. For I have transgressed the commandment of the Lord and your words because I feared the people and obeyed their voice. Because Saul feared the people, because he was more afraid of God and he he disobeys God. He was more afraid of the people and he disobeys God and he allows Agag to live. The line of the Amalekites continues and they are forever the enemies of God's people. Your sin, regardless of how small you think it is, how hidden you think you have it, or just how it's just about me, it's just my thing, it's not hurting anyone. At some point, it is a bomb that will go off. And when bombs go off, they do not hurt just one person. They hurt everything around them, and they create what they call shrapnel. And that shrapnel goes out and can expand the radius of hurt and death. That's what sin, hap- that's what sin does. Your actions, good and bad, have lasting and far-reaching effects You are affecting the people around you. Your decisions, good and bad, are affecting your kids, are affecting generations of your family that you might not ever even get to meet. As someone who has been hurt by bombs and as someone who has set off my fair share and hurt others, I promise you, your sin, no matter how dark, no matter how hidden away you might have it, no matter how in control you think you have of it, will eventually come to light and eventually will do destruction. Repent, bring it to light, confess it, and walk away from it. The actions or the inactions of Saul led to this hatred and anger and animosity for generations. And now things have changed. And now Haman now has power and control. And Mordecai, a Jew, 
And we know from chapter 1 and chapter 2, Mordecai is not only a Jew, he's a Benjamite, which means he comes from the tribe of Benjamin, which is also where Saul came from. And so Saul refuses, and so Mordecai refuses to show honor and respect to this representative Haman of this generations of hate and rage and evil between these two people. This is a long-lasting feud. And Mordecai's refusal to bow affects Haman deeply as well. He learns that Mordecai is a Jew, and that probably speaks to the overreaction of Haman, because when Haman learns of Mordecai's refusal to show him the honor and respect he believes he is due, Haman decides it's not enough that Mordecai needs to die. No, all of his people need to die. In the same way that God told Saul, go wipe out the Amalekites, now Haman says, I'm going to wipe out the Jewish people. Again, that might seem like an overreaction, but when we take in the whole history of this feud, maybe it is, maybe it isn't. We're calling this series God Behind the Scenes. And it's true that God is at work at all times, and he is always in control of all things, and he is constantly doing things even when we can't or won't see it. Even when we aren't paying attention, God is at work. That's true. But sadly, so is Satan. While it's not an even battle, right? Life is not yin and yang, the balance of good and evil. It's not that God and Satan are caught in this epic struggle where one takes advantage at one point and the other one, and they're equal. No, that's not true. God is superior. Good is superior, and evil is subject to God. But that evil still remains and still influences and still does work. Satan is not just sitting on his hands waiting. No, he is at work at all times, causing chaos and ugliness, leading, leading us toward pursuing evil and suffering and hate and rage and sin. It is Satan who is ultimately behind the plot of Haman to destroy the Jewish people. Because think of it from Satan's point of view. If Satan can eliminate the Jewish people, then he eliminates the line of promise. He would wipe out the one who was promised to come in Genesis 3.15 when God says, I'm going to send one who's going to go to war with you, Satan, and he is going to stomp your head out. The one who would come, who Satan would bruise his heel, and the promised one would slay Satan. But if Satan can destroy the entire Jewish people, he can wipe out all of them, then there is no Messiah, then there is no Jesus, then there is no cross, then there is no resurrection, there is no salvation, and you and I are stuck, helpless, and hopeless in our sin. Yes, this is Haman pulling the strings, but make no mistake, Satan is at work here. This isn't even the only time Satan tries this move. Yes, he's been paying attention, and yes, he is crafty, but he finds a thing and he just keeps on doing it. He tries the same thing later on. Isn't this exactly what happens when Jesus was born? Jesus gets born, the wise men show up, they go to King Herod, and they say, where is the king of the Jews? Where is this new king that has been born? We want to worship him. And Herod says what? Herod says, when you find him, come back and tell me. They don't. He gets mad, and he has all of the young boys killed in the land, trying to eliminate the Messiah. Satan is crafty, and he is at work, and he will wait for his perfect opportunity. Paul says in Ephesians 6, we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. That is what is happening here, and that is what is happening here. For us to pretend like there isn't a spiritual battle constantly going on 
is to ignore reality and to allow the enemy to get a stronghold over us. There is an intentionality needed to battle the spiritual forces that we fight on a day-by-day, moment-by-moment basis. It's why Paul tells us in 1 Thessalonians 5 to pray without ceasing. It's why the psalmist declares that he has hidden hidden God's word in his heart so that he might not sin against God. It's why Solomon writes in Proverbs 3 that we are to let love and faithfulness never leave us, that we are to bind them to us, write them on the tablets of our hearts. There is a battle happening, and you are not going to win that battle by accident or chance or happenstance. We must be prepared, be ready, be on guard, be intentional with pursuing God, with walking in the light, with pursuing our relationship with him and growing with him so that we might be able to fight this battle, this very real battle that is happening on a day-by-day, moment-by-moment basis. We see this battle being carried out as Haman decides he's going to wipe out the Jewish people. But he needs a little bit of help to make that happen, and so He's going to go to the king to put his plan at work. Let's pick it up in verse 7. In the first month, which is the month of Nisan, in the twelfth year of King Ahasuerus, they cast purr, that is, they cast lots, before Haman, day after day, and they cast it month after month, till the twelfth month, which is the month of Adar. Then Haman said to King Ahasuerus, There's a certain people scattered abroad and dispersed among the peoples in all the provinces of your kingdom. Their laws are different from those of every other people, and they do not keep the king's laws so that it is not to the king's profit to tolerate them. If it please the king, let it be decreed that they be destroyed, and I will pay 10,000 talents of silver into the hands of those who have charge of the king's business. They may be put it into the king's treasuries." So the king took his signet ring from his hand and gave it to Haman the Agagite, the son of Hamadatha, the enemy of the Jews. And the king said to Haman, The money is given to you, the people also, to do with them as it seems good to you. It's interesting that this starts, this plan gets put into motion in the month of Nisan, which is the first month of the Jewish calendar, which is also typically when they celebrate Passover. As the Jewish people are celebrating, even in distant lands, separated from where they called home for so, so long, as they celebrate this remembrance of what God had done for his people in Egypt, how he had delivered them from Egypt, how he had sent one, how he had sent the plagues, and how the final plague was the one where the firstborn of the families would die. But if you had the lamb of the blood on your doorpost that would pass by you, it would pass over you. And God was this tangible reminder every year, this whole feast dedicated to reminding the people of God's goodness, God's faithfulness, God's power to control, God's love for them. As they are celebrating that, at the same time, Haman is going and finding witches, sorcerers, somebody to cast lots, to throw dice, basically, to try and tell him when's the best time, letting the fates decide when's the best time to go to the king with this plan. And it only happens after months and months and months of throwing purr, dice, lots, to determine when the best time would be. We said last week one of the reasons this book was written was to establish the festival of Purim, which gets its name from purr, the casting of lots. We'll talk more about that in the coming weeks. The beginning of this chapter, we said, like I said, we're in the seventh year of the reign of King Suarez, but now we are in the twelfth year of his reign. Haman has waited five years. 
Satan is crafty and is willing to play the long game. And he waits for those five years. And finally, the purr comes up that it's time to talk to the king. Haman proceeds to manipulate the truth to the king and manipulate the king himself. He tries to paint the Jewish people as this threat to the king, as this rebellious group, these people who won't play by his rules, who won't pay their taxes, who won't do anything. Again, doesn't this sound like what the Pharisees did when they approached the Romans officials about Jesus? They portrayed him as this rebellious political activist who would cause problems for Rome. So Haman actually offers this idea to the king. Let's just wipe these people out. Let's get rid of all of them. They have done no crime. They have done nothing. One guy won't bow to Haman, and he says, let's just wipe all of them out. And not, let's not do it in the cloak of darkness. Let's not do it secret and hidden. No, I want you to write a decree. I want this to be the law of the land that the Jews are to die. And not only that, but to sweeten the deal, he tells King Ahasuerus, Haman himself is going to pay 10,000 talents of silver, which is about 75 pounds, which would have been roughly 70% of the annual income collected from the people in all of Persia. That's a lot of money. Haman's going to phrase it as trying to offset the money that if all of these people go away and there's no more taxes from them, well, here's the money to compensate from that. But it's a bribe. It's a bribe to the king. Haman offers this huge amount of money. And we see in verse 10, once again, we are reminded of exactly who Haman is in regards to the Jewish people. He is an enemy of the Jews. We also see in verse 10 that the king takes off his ring and he gives it to Haman. At that time, the king used a signet ring, which means he had a ring on and it had his um, emblem, had his initials, something. It was his personal signature. That's how he signed laws to go in to be official. It's how he made decrees. He would take some, you would take some max welted wax, welt, melt it down, put your ring into it, and that was the king's signature. Anything stamped with this ring would have the authority and support of the king of Persia. But Ahasuerus not only gives his approval, but in giving his ring to Haman, he is giving over his authority. Basically, he is washing his hands of the whole thing, trying to abdicate himself and get away from saying, I don't know what's going to happen, but I don't want any part of it. He just disconnects himself from this major decision to wipe out an entire people group. But it's still his ring. It's his word. It's his authority that allows this new law to be made. And it does. This decree goes out. It is sent out throughout the land by messengers and carriers. It's signed and delivered throughout the land, signed with the signet ring of the king. And at the end of the day, if you skip down to verse 15, actually we'll go to 14, a copy of the document was to be issued as a decree in every providence by proclamation to all the peoples to be ready for that day. Carriers went out hurriedly by order of the king, and the decree was issued in Susa the citadel. And the king and Haman sat down to drink, but the city of Susa was thrown into confusion. At the end of the day, Haman and the king sit down to have a drink, and the people of Susa and the people of the capital city were thrown into confusion. What do we do with this whole decree? This comes out of nowhere. 
And this is not, hey, I'm raising your taxes. Hey, we're going to have a festival. Hey, there's something important. No, this is, hey, we're going to kill a lot of people. And the city says, what do we do with this? How do, how do we respond to this? So let me ask the question. If we get to the end of chapter 3, who's in charge? I mean, this is the book of Esther, but she's not even here for chapter 3. Mordecai is actually the object of the pain here. Ahasuerus really just punts on his responsibility. And if you look at Ahasuerus for these first three chapters, he doesn't have much character to him. He makes decisions when he's really drunk and really angry. And then he just gives his ring and just kind of tries to back off of it. He doesn't have a whole lot of backbone. Mordecai is subject to the king's allowance. And, I mean, Mordecai himself, he has this idea, but he's got to get the king to let him do it. And even before that, he subjects himself to just the roll of a dice. You know, it's hard to look at this, though, to get to the end of chapter 3 and say God is in control because from a human perspective, it looks really bad. If we're just taking the, the evidence of what's happening here, it's kind of hard to say, God, what, how are you in control here? The evil and hate and darkness seem to be winning. The decree is a law, the villain, the only guy, the villain looks like he's winning and the only guy who could possibly stop him, they are sitting down to have a drink together. It's chaos in the streets. Everything about this points to the darkness winning. This act is set to bring evil, a deadly evil upon people. But it will actually, in the end, glorify God and there will be salvation for the people of God. I hope that as we have read through three, and I hope you go back and read through, Esther is a pretty easy book to read through. You should read through it once or twice even. Just have it on audio. Um, but if you go back and read these first three chapters, and especially chapter three, I hope as I've pointed out some of the connections and I've left a few of them unpointed to that you can pick up as you go, how closely some of these events play out and point us to the events of Jesus in his final days. Right down to the evil and darkness of hate seemingly in control. You get to the end of chapter three and it's kind of like Friday afternoon into Saturday of Easter weekend. Jesus is dead. There's literal darkness all over the place. The disciples, the ones who called him their Messiah, who said, you are the Son of God, watched him die and get buried. They're hiding out in rooms because they're afraid they're next. But of course, we know Haman doesn't win at the end of Esther. We know the Romans didn't win. The Pharisees and scribes didn't win. Satan didn't win. Satan doesn't win. No, the gospel wins. Grace wins. Hope and mercy win. The sovereignty and justice and love of God win. The one truly in control is God who is orchestrating and allowing the decisions of flawed, broken, sinful people to eventually reveal his glory. They haven't messed it up. They haven't gotten in his way. They haven't slowed the process. God is at work and God wins. We know this because we know that Christ eventually comes. We know that Christ died and Christ rose again. Jesus came to establish the kingdom of God, to bring about a different kind of kingdom, one that is completely counter to everything about this world. To be a follower of Christ is to be in conflict and opposition with this world 
pretty much at all times. We see Ahasuerus abdicating his leadership and responsibility, just trying to walk away from it. And it reminds us as Christians, we don't have that luxury. We don't get to take days off. We don't stop being a Christian when it's not convenient, when it's hard and messy, when we might not clearly understand what God is doing. No, Jesus has said, you are the light of the world. Not, hey, if you have a chance, try and be a light. Not, hey, if you get to this certain level of Christianity, you are a light. No, you are the light of the world. That's your role. We have been invited in to do what the Israelites were doing for hundreds and thousands of years, to reflect to the rest of the world what it looks like to be the people of God. We have the chance to lead by example. Here's what grace looks like. Here's what mercy looks like. Here's what forgiveness looks like because we've experienced those things. We get to be part of what God is doing in redeeming and restoring all of this broken world back to himself by pointing others to him. We don't get to take days off. We don't get to just say, I don't want to be a Christian now because it's hard, because it's messy, because it's uncomfortable. No, we are counter to the world in every which way, and that is what we are to live into every day. That's why we are called to not do this on our own, why we are the, the very living stones of the church. What do stones of a building do? They lay on top of one another. They support one another. Christianity in this, we do this together, supporting and encouraging and walking together in these things. The evil and hate of Haman reminds us of the love and mercy and justice and forgiveness of God that conquers all. Those things that we received from God through Jesus at the cross, the love of God that sent his one and only son to die for us so that if we would put our faith in him, we would have new life. The mercy of God who saw us in our helpless, sinful ways. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. We couldn't do, we didn't do, we can't do anything to earn or win the affections of God because God loves you so much that he already has sent his son. There was nothing we were going to do to impress him. We see the justice of God carried out through Christ at the cross as he bears our sins as he takes on the sins of all of eternity, from Adam and Eve biting into that fruit and getting everything started, all the way through Haman and this evil, all the way up to the cross, and all the way until Christ come back, every sin on him was laid. The justice of God was poured out. Sin is done. Shame and guilt, those things are done. They're paid for. It's over. The forgiveness of God we find through our faith in Jesus the forgiveness of God for our sins we find through Christ in his death and resurrection. These are the things that are in complete counter to this world who say you take care of you, you get yours, and regardless of what it does to anybody else, and you can even at times just go and attack and hurt people if you decide you're right and they're wrong. But the gospel says no. The gospel says no, there's something totally counter. That's what God has intended, what God is doing to bring all things back to himself is completely counter to this world. The chaos that left by Haman reminds us that our God is a God of order and peace. There is literal chaos in the streets of the, of the capital city, but the good shepherd leads us and cares for us. We have a good shepherd as we are his sheep. We have a good shepherd who leaves the 99 to go find the lost one. No matter how many times you get lost, no matter how many times you sin, no matter how many times you find yourself wandering in the darkness, the good shepherd will come and find you. He's the good shepherd who leads us and provides us and gives us rest. 
Even when we might not think we need rest, he makes us lie down in green pastures. He says, you need rest. I got you. I know what's best for you. He's the good shepherd who will gently carry us in his arms when we don't have the strength to take another step, but he's also the good shepherd who will kill every wolf and bear who comes trying to hurt us. Order and peace and rest and direction and protection, these are the things provided for us by our shepherd, by the good shepherd. God created all things by his powerful word, and all his creation was very good. Everything flourished under his loving rule. And then sin entered and disrupted that flourishing. And brothers and sisters, though it might not always feel like it, though we may feel trapped under the weight of a never-ending winter, do not lose hope. Do not think that your God is taking days off because he's not. No, the good shepherd is at work because the light will always conquer the darkness And hope is here for us today, right now, and a God who made you and knows you and loves you. Regardless of what kind of darkness is at work, regardless of what it may look like, there is only one who is in complete control of all things at all times. He is the God who made us and knows us and loves us. Let us rejoice and thank God for him. God, we thank you for being you. We could spend hours upon hours, days upon days, just thanking you and celebrating you for who you are, for who you have revealed yourself to us to be. And I don't think there's enough time left because you're that good and that awesome. And what's amazing about that is You continue to reveal yourself to us deeper and deeper still. There's never a point where we're going to get to just knowing you fully. There's always more to know. There's always more to experience. There's always more to rest in and rejoice in and celebrate. God, it feels like at times this world is just exhausting. We just don't have a whole lot of steps left. We don't have a whole lot of energy left. In those times, we help us to find our filling up in you, our rest in you. Help us to remember where the source of all joy and love and righteousness and mercy and grace, all of these things, the things that we cling to, the things that we love, the things that we need, remind us that they find their very beginning, their essence in you. We're not going to find our fulfillment, our contentment, our love in anything outside of you. God, when we are tired and beaten down and feel just too broken, God, we thank you that you are that good shepherd who comes and finds us and rescues us and carries us home. And when we are beaten by this world, when it looks like nothing good can come from anything, remind us that you are in control of all things at all times, that we can find our rest in you, we can find order in you in the midst.
midst of the chaos. Hope in you where there are, seems to be hopeless situations. God, I pray that if there is anyone who is listening to this, is watching this, and doesn't know you, Lord, I pray that right now in this moment they would come to know you as God and Savior, that they would put their faith in Jesus and his life, death, burial, and resurrection for the forgiveness of their sins. God, I pray that you would soften their hearts to the gospel message, to the good news that God saw us in our helpless, broken state and that you did something about it. You didn't just leave us stuck in this mess, but you sent one who would go to war for us, who would defeat our sin, who will defeat Satan, who will bring about a new kingdom, a new heaven and earth, a new life for us. And that new life, we don't even have to wait on. It's now, it's here for us to live into. God, I pray that today is that day for people. That today is that day where they can mark on their calendars and know that they tasted and saw that the Lord was good today, that they came to experience your grace and forgiveness and love. God, help us as we go into this world, as alarm clocks go off tomorrow, even as we just turn our computers off after this and we just are with our family, with our friends, with just engaging with the world around us, God. Remind us that we are lights of the world. That's what we have, you have made us to be. Help us to shine those lights brightly. Give us the boldness and the comfort and the energy. Give us the reminder that you are with us always, even to the end of the age that there's nowhere we can go that you won't be with us. Help us to be paying attention, God, because we know you are always at work, even if it's behind the scenes. Help us to stop, slow down, and see those areas, see those places, see those moments where you are at work, where you are inviting us to step into this work. You don't need us, but you invite us to be part of what you are doing. God, help us to step into those moments, to take advantage of those moments, and to be part of what you are doing in this world, to redeem and restore all things back to yourself. God, we thank you and we love you.